This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Afternoon. Uh, we have here Professor Canales, Chair in Strategy and Management. Thank you very much, Professor Canales, for um, accepting to do this podcast, uh, a chat or an interview, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I will start uh, asking you, what in your perception are the benefits to pursue um, a career on sustainability? Okay, well, thank you very much for having me. I will do my very best from my expertise to try to answer your questions. Uh, and well, what, what is the, wh why would somebody uh, pursue a career in, in sustainability? It's kind of a fashionable thing, but also it's something that more and more adds value to the way organizations work. So there would be a, work for somebody in sustainability for a long time and also this work would benefit the world so it's a it's kind of a win-win situation to choose a career in sustainability now unfortunately the biggest uh, challenge is that it's a huge field and it's a it's a field that is changing all the time and it's really hard to keep up with it it's not like you're going to study something at university and then you're going to use it for the rest of your life. No, probably a career in sustainability will require you to update yourself on a daily basis uh, to carry on being valuable for organizations. Um, and then I will go to your field of expertise. What is, in your view, in your interpretation, uh, strate strategic planning? Uh, how can you define it? Can we define it uh, somehow? Yeah, strategic planning is a concept that was very much in use in the 1960s. In the 1960s, there was this vision of the world in which most things seem to be predictable. People, well, people who are young may not know that the 1960s was probably the most uh, wealth-generating decade in the world. And it was a very stable world. So it made sense to try to plan five years ahead or 10 years ahead. And what they did basically was an exercise in number crunching. They projected sales and they projected those sales in five years. And then they projected the costs pretty much by taking the number today and multiplying it by uh, the rate of growth, a rate, a desired rate of growth. So strategic planning had a lot of a uh, people who were in favor of it, especially the bigger companies, companies like General Motors or DuPont or what were bigger companies back then and had a, a big manufacturing uh, capacity or facility. So they had to plan ahead. The only way in which they could plan, I don't know, how much steel they would need or how much resources they would need was to carry out strategic planning. However, after the 1960s comes the 1970s, and in the 1970s, the, the biggest shock is the oil crisis, which happens in 1974. And then in 1974, all these plans they had to put they had they had to put them in the bin very quickly, because the world changed so much 
that planning ahead five years was absolutely ridiculous. So strategic planning fell kind of in disrepute, if you want. And there's a famous article by Henry Minsberg in which he criticizes strategic planning uh, very, very strongly because he, his critique, and his critique is still true, is that in strategic planning, you don't find strategy. So strategic planning was an exercise of moving forward uh, in the same way as we are now. <clears throat> However, in the 1980s and in the 1990s, there was kind of a movement to use strategic planning as a vehicle, but the activities that were carrying out when they were doing strategic planning were completely different to what was being done in the 1960s. So, for example, activities that they did in the 1980s and 90s and the start of the 2000s were activities like, let's do focus groups and try to find with our customers, for example, or with our suppliers, what is the best possible strategy? How can we together develop a best possible strategy? That's where things like Portis Five Forces come into play as, as, an, as analysis tools, as, as ways to analyze how the industry performs. Because then it becomes an ex in these years, strategic planning, rather than being an exercise of what is going to happen, which is absolutely impossible to determine, it becomes an exercise, an exercise of if this happens, then what actions can we take to prevent that, to make the most of that? Or if, if, if maybe in some states of nature, uh, the company would need to close. The biggest winner in this era were the oil companies. Because of the most surprising thing in, 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 in this company called Shell, <coughs> they invented something called scenario planning, which basically was to tell a story of what would the company do, what would Shell do, if there were changes in the environment. And they were really lucky because they had a scenario that uh, determined what they had to do if the oil price went up. And Shell, which wasn't a particularly big company before 1974, after that became uh, incredibly big because they had all the plans laid out if something happened. Now, this scenario planning that was very uh, effective for Shell hasn't been that effective for other companies because they didn't, uh, scenario planning only w works if you hit the lottery in the state of nature that will happen. So if you're able to guess what's going to happen and then adapt ahead of time, then you're in a great position. So after the, you may remember that in, in the year 2000, there was the dot-com bubble, <coughs> which basically meant that there were many companies that had grown, mostly internet companies, but there was no substance to it. So many of these companies just went bust. So people don't remember that before the year 2000, Amazon didn't make any money at all. And actually, they, they saved the company from failure by a whisker. However, then Amazon became the giant that we all know now, and they started selling everything. And that selling everything worked for them. So 
that's, that brings us to today and what strategic planning is today. Although many companies would disregard strategic planning as an old thing, there are many companies that carry out strategic planning exercises regularly. And what do these strategic planning exercises look today? They look like, an, a, typically companies call it like an away day. In this away day, they try to kind of think outside the box and try to think what would happen in, in possible futures. They do a bit of scenario planning. They do a bit of portage by forces, if you want, and they do SWOT analysis, that kind of thing, to try to come up with reactions or with possible strategies the companies can have towards the future. So it's still pretty much something that is being uh, used. And, and actually that I know there's nothing better to organize a company and to try to develop some buy-in into the strategy. Uh, but as Minsberg very cleverly said, in, in the strategic planning exercises, there's no strategy coming out of that. The only thing that comes out of strategic planning exercises is pre the company getting prepared for possible states of nature. It also develops buy-in, so people commit to the strategy they're developing, and it pretty much shares the burden rather than being developed exclusively by the CEO is something that is developed more collectively by a broader group of people, which may include top managers or middle managers. And broadly speaking, you will have, you, you tend to have an organization that works together better if everybody kind of knows what they're doing rather than uh, if they're being told whether they understand it or not. So it's an exercise of understanding what the strategy is and, 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 and an exercise of understanding what we need to do and an exercise of working together. That's what strategic planning is today. Um, and how this process of engagement with uh, different levels of organizations can um, enhance competitive advantage? Well, it, 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 the answer, I mean, I can give you a very short answer. It can't because the, the process of strategic planning mostly is an organizational process, is a building collaboration. However, yeah, I, I maybe spoke too soon, there are ways to encourage the development of competitive advantage because competitive advantage is a, a reward that the best company gets within an industry. So most companies in an, in an industry want to achieve competitive advantage. Unfortunately, only one, only the best one achieves competitive advantage. So the more coordination you have, the more likely you are to achieve competitive advantage. If you think, for example, when you go to McDonald's or any company like that in, in which everything is formatted, things work because there are ways to do things. So if there are more people coming, they are able to scale up their production because they know the ways to do things. So the more coordinated, probably the easiest, the easier it will be to aim at competitive advantage, but it will not guarantee, I mean, the fact that you do these exercises doesn't guarantee that you will achieve competitive advantage. Um, uh, the, next, the next question I would like to ask you is, um, do you think a corporate strategy should include environmentally friendly perspective? Well, absolutely, absolutely, yes. Uh, and I'm, but I'm going to try to explain why. What happens is that 
many people confuse corporate strategy with kind of the broader part of the organization. And actually, corporate strategy is something a lot more specific than that. Corporate strategy is how uh, companies bring together different businesses and how they coordinate these businesses between themselves. So corporate strategy doesn't speak to the business specifically. It speaks to several businesses. And for example, one of the main benefits of corporate strategy is when corporate strategy is able to take synergies of one business and use them in another business. That's basically the reason why corporate strategy exists. Because if there was no synergy to be uh, used between businesses, then businesses should be, I mean, would be better managed individually rather than as part of us of a corporation or a conglomerate. So, well, I've given you this very huge answer to uh, give you a hint of why corporate strategy should include sustainability, because sustainability is a problem that is that's over an overarching problem of businesses. So, it 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 it's something that in which corporations can learn from something done in one business and perhaps use that in another business. And especially with, with what happens, well, what has been happening over, I don't, I don't know, the three or four last years, that there's this ultimatum agenda in sustainability and the natural, natural environment, that it, it has to become the task of every organization, not only every business, every organization in the world. Well, and it has to become a part of the activities that we, each human being does, because we are causing this, this situation. It's not being caused by any other external uh, effect. We're causing it. So the fact that we are causing it forces us to take charge of how to improve the situation and the only way the only way i know that improvement happens in corporations is by learning from one unit one strategic business unit and then perhaps sharing that knowledge across business units uh, you will find that <coughs> mostly in organizations that have some some level of related diversification meaning that they do a similar business then there's a very clear possibility of bringing one uh, knowledge from one to the other one. For example, in the uh, in the car industry, <coughs> sorry, you will find that there are very few car manufacturers in the world. There are about ten, and ten that is if you count the Chinese, which are several. So most of the car, most of the uh, brands of cars that people can recall belong to a group that belongs to a single company. So in a, in, a, in, a, in a thing so important for the environment as the production of cars, it has to be done in a way that there, there's a synergy that is used from one business to one business. So, for example, companies like Volkswagen will have several brands and whatever they learn from w one business they're carrying out for one brand, for example, I don't know, uh, Volkswagen itself, then they would tend to apply that to the other businesses they take part, like Porsche and uh, I, I, I ran out of words now, but many of the other uh, 
businesses in which they take part? Uh, so the answer is yes, definitely. And the mechanism for sustainability to have an effect in corporate strategy would be using the synergies one business has into another business. I hope that gives you a fairly uh, good answer. Yes, thank you very much. So you spoke about the process of uh, uh, of planning, of building up scenarios and engaging um, different uh, levels of organizations. And um, your work, uh, your research is based on um, middle managers. So let's put your work in the context of uh, sustainability. So who are the middle managers and how can middle managers influence this process of engagement with sustainability? Mm -hmm. Well, how did middle managers come into play? Because in the 1990s, there was a big uh, wave of something called outsourcing. So for most big corporations, they thought that middle managers were a waste of time and effort, and they got rid of the middle managers and outsourced that elsewhere, that, those activities. And soon they found out that, that, that middle managers were extremely valuable for organizations. And more importantly, they had a significant say in the strategy companies formed. And why did they have that? Because middle managers act as a, an interface between the line people and top managers. So whatever happens, at the bottom of the organization, which is actually the interface with the customer, that permeates to the rest of the organizations through middle managers. If you take out middle managers, it, they realize suddenly that uh, the top manager management didn't get any of the messages from the market. There were companies that went bust because of this. So then there was this new wave in the 2000s in which I, I took part of encouraging the participation of middle managers in developing a strategy. And that participation had to do with how could they contribute to a, a better strategy? How could they contribute to I don't know, better sales or, or, or better development of the company? And it has been extremely fruitful. In today's world, almost no company would doubt that the middle managers are extremely valuable. Uh, so how, I mean, the, the, the jump from there to sustainability shouldn't be that hard because for, I mean, companies, if you think of companies like a network that is connected to a series of other stakeholders rather than thinking of the company, the company and the customer, that's not correct. There's a company, the customer the relatives to the customers, the people who hear about it, the people who supply the company, the people who hear about the company, the people who own the company, the people who own the building that runs the company, and so on and so forth. There are tons of people, and these are called stakeholders in general. If you think, but however, in most organizations, you will find that the, the biggest decisions are taken by the top management team, if not exclusively the CEO. So if you have something as crucial as dealing with the natural environment, relying on exclusively the top management team to 
learn the information from the environment and then react to the environment, then you are in big trouble because it's likely that uh, you're not going to be able to react adequately. Thinking, for example, on this uh, industry of the car manufacturers, uh, probably you heard that lately uh, they're launching all these different types of cars. Some are uh, elect fully electric, some are hybrids, and there's this thing in the middle called the plug-in hybrid, which is pretty much everything. You, it's electric and it, it's, it, it, and it has an engine. It, that is showing that this is an industry that is in an unstable situation, that the standard of car is not being developed. There are several competitive uh, models, several competitive uh, forms in which this that this may take. So if any of these car manufacturers is not really connected fully to the environment through all their possible ways, then they will lose. They will lose this game. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if in 10 years' time when most cars, most new cars should be electric, there would be losers in the manufacturing because they didn't catch up and they didn't do it on time. And they were not perceptive enough from the environment to be able to change. And who does that? The middle managers are the ones who channel that need for change. There's a, another interesting story that is this company called Nokia, which most people will re hopefully will remember because they were the biggest phone operators in the world. They, they, they developed uh, mobile phones. Uh, and there was nobody that competed against them. However, as we all know the story, the smartphone took over and Nokia doesn't do mobile phones anymore. So there's a story in the beginning of the, two, I mean, middle 2000s, in which uh, Nokia wasn't able to react to this change in the environment that was going to kill them. And the reason why they were not, going, they were not able to react is because middle managers in Nokia were reluctant to give bad news to the top management. So they just didn't say anything uh, or didn't say it with enough strength or didn't say it at the right moment. But that's the biggest explanation why Nokia couldn't react because this channel of communication wasn't there. So it's not only that middle managers are essential for the strategy of the corporation, but also they stand as the a vehicle through which communication happens. If sustainability has this humongous impact that it has in organizations and you don't count them in managers to act as, the, as this channel, well, then it's probably never going to happen. And then you spoke a lot about middle managers talking to the top. But how, how can middle managers uh, enhance the engagement of the bottom level of the employees yeah. are the ones uh, that actually are responsible for the production and for the delivery of service. And they are perhaps in contact with the most challenging circumstances and they perhaps can have answers to many questions that top managers so how can the middle managers enhance uh, their communication with um, employees in general? 
Well, the short answer is I don't know. I am absolutely sure that is supposed to happen. Uh, that's the reason why middle managers are there. They are supposed to be the link between the bottom of the organization and the top of the organization. One would argue that if they're not doing that, well, they're not doing their job. Uh, so you would expect that they, that middle managers would be close to the business, would be close to the customer, and, 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 and would be close to line managers, if you want, in which they, close to the cold face. Uh, so maybe one way of checking this is making sure that middle managers are actually involved with the business and rather than sitting in their offices and doing nothing. Uh, but I, I wouldn't be able to tell you how that is done. My hunch would be they would need to be uh, very close to the business. And, and if you're able to double check whether they're close or not, well, perhaps you'd be able to tell whether they are connected to the bottom. But I wouldn't know how... Uh, that is done. And so you spoke about um, different uh, industry sectors, cars, mm -hmm. and um, uh, you also spoke about some specific companies such as Nokia, uh, you spoke about Amazon, and um, in your views, uh, in your views, can all types of sectors and industry um, uh, get uh, some competitive advantage if they include in their process of thinking, in their process of planning, their process of uh, setting their strategies, if they consider, for instance, environmental issues? Well, uh, I, uh, let's bear in mind that the competitive advantage depends on how companies are able to perform better than their competitors. And that performance has to do with how do they interact with the customers. Companies which tend to achieve the competitive advantage are those that interact with the customers in such a way that is beneficial for both the customer and themselves. So if customers and other stakeholders care about uh, sustainability issues, then companies would need to care about. I don't know, if, if you like running for example but you won't run unless you have a environmentally friendly trainers then the big companies have to get on with the job and produce environmentally friendly trainers the it is very likely that their technology at the beginning will be disastrous and i don't know the trainers will fall apart as you run uh, but it, it it's something that hasn't been explored before because until now the environment was kind of the one that paid the bill. We, we produce the best trainers in the world that can make you, I don't know, jump a million miles and, 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 and can make you run and whatnot. But once they were thrown away, they didn't, they didn't degrade. And nobody cared about that. But, but in the, in the, in the ex, to the extent that the public movement makes customers care about that, then customers have to do it. But you see, it comes from the customer. When the customer is able to value the value of sustainability, then they may be able to pay a little bit more for the product or source it, sort it, source it somehow. So, they, uh, so for, the, for the company, it becomes valuable to generate sustainab sustainably 
developed products or environmentally friendly products. But it's the customer <coughs> that makes the change. It would be really hard for the organization or for the company to make the change because if, if, if this is like, like, like uh, free-range chicken, if companies have free-range chicken and they try to sell it for three times the price, it probably doesn't sell because it's not a top-down thing. It has to be a bottom-up. Uh, and that's why your question, the previous question is so important. And I, I, I am sorry I hadn't thought about that. But if the customer is so important, if the stakeholder is so important in driving this change and they communicate that to the organization, it has to be able to flow very quickly across the organization. Otherwise, the organization cannot uh, cope. But then how do middle managers enable that flow? That's something that is, is, is really an interesting research question, huh? uh, how it works the other way around. Yes. Um, so um, you all you spoke something very interesting as well, and said that um, the demand should come from the customer. Then I I would like to ask you a question. For instance, um, can can we find any justification? for some companies to um, sell some products that is damaging um, the health of um, lives and the health of the customers. As we said, as we know, there are many companies that sell uh, products with high sugar levels. There are many companies that sell products that is affecting uh, a climate change issues. So, how can we explain this if it comes from the customer? How how can we explain and how can we explain companies that keep on doing this mm. if it is not of the for the benefit of the customer, if it's not for the benefit of uh, uh, the society? How how can companies uh, sustain this sorts of behavior? Mm. Well, I. Maybe I'm wrong, but I would tend to believe that in the long term, organizations that um, do not act in the benefit of the world will disappear. But in the short run, there are corporate or organizational pirates, and it is perhaps the responsibility of the cust of, of, of sorry of the of, of the government, or perhaps even kind of the police or something like the police of the world, and I'm going to give you an example now that I love, to stop that. In, probably you, you've told this story many times, but it, it, there's this story of, of, of the first platform of the North Sea that they had to decommission. Uh, and and it, the company that did, did this was Shell. Rather than decommissioning it, they thought that they would dump it in the middle of the ocean, as you do. I know now when I say it, it sounds outrageous, but they thought it was the normal thing to do. So they found a part of the ocean that was really, 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 really deep. And then they were floating this platform across the ocean and they were, not they, they, was gonna, they were going to just sink it there. And the one that prevented this was Greenpeace make, raising awareness. And they, they put it in the cameras and say, look, they're going to dump this humongously big 
a platform full of contaminants that will contaminate the world forever. They will dump it in the middle of the ocean. And they're taking no responsibility of that. They're paying no price for that. Well, it was because of this outrage in the world that then oil companies are forced now to decommission their platforms. And decommissioning means take it apart bit by bit, and whichever you can use, you reuse it, and whichever you have to throw away, well, then you throw it away in a responsible way. Imagine had Greenpeace done, if they hadn't done that, there would now we would have an ocean full of platforms at the bottom, and then how on earth are we going to rescue that from the bottom of the ocean and whatnot? So there's a, a, a role that these organizations play. I am personally very fond of Greenpeace. I know why some other peoples may not be, uh, but I, I think that these, uh, if you want, police of the world, or there's a better word for this, that it's a uh, the people who sound the alarm should exist and perhaps should be encouraged. And, and, and there should be alarm sounding bodies everywhere. Whistleblowers. Whistleblower, that, that's, that's encouraging yeah. whistleblowing, which is true for any organization, whether it's unsustainability or not. <laughs> yes, so, um, do you have any advice for accounting students on how they can influence this process of decision making, this process of planning, this process of engagement? They will go to organizations, they perhaps will become middle managers, they perhaps will become top managers. So what is your advice for them? Well, my advice is probably uh, I mean, it's, it's really hard to give advice in that situation, but what I would tell somebody that I, I don't know, a niece or a son that I really care about is, I would tell them, look, if you're going to go into the marketplace, it's going to be, there are going to be many things you don't like. And there would be many things that you don't like that you have to live with. But be very careful to choose your battles. Because when you give up your basic principles, you cannot re recover them. So even if you may need to swallow some things that you don't like, uh, make sure that those things that are your basic principles, you don't swallow. And you're able to make, that, uh, make it a better place. Uh, I know it sounds really kind of difficult, especially, I don't know, if it's a matter of whether you will have a job or not. Uh, but for that, unfortunately, you cannot leave, let the job manage you. Well, the best way to do that, to, to, to not allow that to happen, is try to have your savings. And then if, if the job becomes so complicated or so against your principles, well, then you can say, no, I don't, I don't accept this. Uh, I, I, I mean, it doesn't need, you don't need to become a, a dreamer. <laughs> but being able to deal with the things that you believe in in a way that you find them, uh, you find adequate what you're doing, is, is what we should aim at in every walk of life. Uh, now, will the 
environmental environmental crisis be averted and will we come back to kind of some level of normality? No, the world is already spoiled. Uh, however, if we're able to start working the best that we can now, then there's a chance that in, in some future we'd be able to um, live a more stable environmental situation. Um, but it's, it's obvious that over the last, I don't know, 200 years with the development of mankind, uh, we have destroyed the world. So it's a very simple answer. Just try not to give up on your principles and, and carry on believing in them. Thank you very much indeed for all your answers and for your time. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure all of us and students will enjoy to hear uh, this recording over and over again. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.